Scientists have identified the key ways in which we humans are destroying the ecosystems on which we depend. Is there climate change? Yeah. I mean, will it change back? Probably, that's what I think. How dare you? The British Conservation Alliance was launched by students in the United Kingdom to advocate for market-based environmental reforms. You should be empowered to deal with those problems. Lebanon, Poland, Spain, the US, the UK, Austria. It's just really cool seeing all these people gather to talk about these ideas when we weren't doing this a year ago, and we're doing it now. We can begin to defend the Earth against the disaster of global warming. The Green Market Podcast. This is Richard Benuli host for the show and CEO for Cedar Gold. The Green Market is a show by the British Conservation Alliance in association with the Austrian Economic Center and Cedar Gold. Our show focuses on topics revolving around market environmentalism, ESG, impact investing, and the application of the Austrian School of Economics towards a green social vision that makes sense, that works, and is not agenda-based or government-based. Today, we'd like to focus on comparing market environmentalism to agenda-based or government-based environmentalism. Our participants today are Hannah Downey. She's the Policy Director at the Property and Environment Research Center, PERC, which is a nonprofit institute in Bozeman, Montana, dedicated to free market environmentalism. And Kai Weiss. He's the Research and Outreach Coordinator of the Austrian Economic Center in Vienna, Austria. Welcome, Hannah and Kai. Hey, great having you. Yeah, thanks for having us. Great. I thought we begin with a discussion to explore what is uh, market environmentalism and government environmentalism and how and why does market environmentalism present a better approach. Hannah, would you like to begin? Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Um, I think this topic is really important, especially as we're looking kind of as as young people or as society as how do we go forward in in conservation? We've kind of identified that we know we so value clean air, clean water, clean environment, and there's immense human benefits to that. And so the question now is how do we get that? Uh, you raise kind of these two separate approaches, government environmentalism or market environmentalism. And I think that distinction is really important as we want to think through how do we best achieve those conservation outcomes. So in my mind, um, government environmentalism is basically where we give government or a centralized body power over natural resources and environmental decisions. So all of that power is kind of focused or centralized in government that we commonly see that play out in the form of like regulations or kind of more command and control in the traditional sense of how government might engage on environmental issues. Market environmentalism, on the other hand, really puts the power and ownership of those resources in the hands of the stakeholders and the people on the ground and the individuals who understand the trade-offs and the costs and benefits of how we manage those resources. And in my opinion, market environmentalism is is the tool that actually gets the incentives right for sustainable conservation. And I know we'll get into that uh, more down the road, but Kai would love to hear what you think on that as well. Sure, so I mean, I think you made an extremely important point in always asking the question of what is the best way to actually reach your goals? Because I think that is really missing in environmental discussions. I remember when I sort of got interested in environmental ideas it was when uh, my school teacher uh, forced us or <laughs> showed us an inconvenient truth by Al Gore 
and I came home and I was all panicky and stuff. And I completely understand that. I completely understand the concerns, but I actually got home with the feeling that we kind of have to redo everything. We have to uh, have government sort of figuring everything out. And I actually had sort of myself from a personal experience an almost a socialist experience over the next few years of, um, you know, wanting the government to even set some kind of benevolent green dictator uh, finally getting us back on track to prevent us, you know, from a disaster on climate and on environmental issues. But I think the extremely important issue is that almost everyone in our societies care about the environment, um, and we should, but what is the best way to go about sort of getting to a cleaner and greener world? Um, and I think Hannah put it perfectly in saying, okay, let's empower those who are actually um, who are actually able to change it and not have it in some far away distant city where a Green New Deal gets implemented or something like that, but to have it there where, you know, people are actually be held, can be held accountable, where people can actually um, introduce new ideas, be creative in solving these issues. And I think that's the much better approach. Kai, I love that you brought up your experience with an inconvenient truth, because I have to say I had a fairly similar experience of when I originally went to university, I wanted to go study environmental law and wanted to fight to uphold all of these ideas that to make the environment better. And as I started learning about that, I was kind of a, a classically liberal, free market oriented thinker outside of that. But that was like my sweet spot. All I knew is that if you care about the environment, you need to have rules and regulations and kind of force people to do the right thing. And as I started going down this environmental law path and learning more about uh, some of the major statutes and laws governing how we do environmentalism, I, I sort of realized like, what are we actually encouraging people to do on the ground? Like these things sound so good, right? It, in concept, it sounds good to say, stop polluting or like take care of wildlife. Um, don't emit carbon, like those sorts of things. It sounds so good, but reading these cases and seeing what it actually led to people doing on the ground, I kind of realized like you can have all the good rhetoric you want, but if it doesn't actually translate into getting people to do the right thing on the ground, what's the point? So I, I appreciate your inconvenient truth analogy because I kind of had the same realization where you realize, okay, if I actually want results, how do we do that? And if you can give some examples of how government solutions in the past, like maybe the, the Soviet Union, you know, from a centralized planning perspective, all the devastation to the environment that that, that came about, um, Hannah? Yeah, absolutely. I think one of the most telling um, aspects of, of when we go really hardcore and look, okay, let's compare truly kind of very centralized government socialist economies uh, to more market-based economies. A, a very obvious example that we can look at kind of in more recent history at least is compare sort of the Soviet Union, Eastern Europe to Western Europe and, and the United States, some of the more market-based economies of the time. And one of the factoids that just stands out so strongly to me is looking at market economies used one third of the energy and steel per unit of GDP as the socialist economies did. And that to me just goes so much to say, do we have incentives for innovation? Do we have a reason to become efficient? Do we realize the basic concept of scarcity? If someone just has the power to say, well, bring me more resources, bring me more 
water or energy or whatever that might be, there's no concept of scarcity. And so you have no reason to try and innovate and get more creative um, and more efficient in how you use those resources. And that's that's a really extreme example, but I think we see those sorts of stories um, kind of all throughout the world even now, just looking at basic tragedy of the commons, you know, the, the really classic fun economic story of if nobody owns it, you have no reason to be aware of the scarcity of it. Because if you don't use it, someone else is going to use it. And I think we see that not only in that, that traditional example I shared on like steel and energy, but we see it in the kind of modern world today with ocean fisheries or land resources, those sorts of things. But there's there's tons of examples out there. So Kai, do you have any favorites or things that really stand out in your mind? Yeah, I mean, my favorites are always about the EU. Uh, when it's about messing something up, then the EU is always a good example, and I think it's it's no different. Uh, I, I do like the Soviet Union example, but it's obviously very extreme in a sense, because I guess most socialists don't want to use the Soviet Union as an example for, for their cause. But I think we can look, as Anna said, to, to governments today who are not even socialist per se, but just, you know, social democrat, um, the, the general mainstream politics. Um, where we can see all of these problems of government-mandated rules. Um, and when you look, for instance, at the EU um, on the fishery policy, they basically tried to implement a quota system, but then big corporations came along and they kind of, you know, they negotiated a bit with the regulators and got some exceptions, which is, I think, one of the main problems also with government environmentalism being that, um, you know, those who are well-connected they can simply get around those rules, whereas others cannot. And so the fishing quotas in the end became completely useless and about 80% of the different fishes are now overfished in the European waters. Um, another example, uh, the common agricultural policy, agricultural subsidies in the EU um, have a strange correlation to nitrate pollution. So wherever a lot of subsidies go, uh, there's a lot more pollution uh, because basically um, the EU just sends money wherever they think it needs to go without any environmental concerns about it. Um, and another great example, I think, of, you know, why should we trust the government to protect our environment is that to this day, um, about $10 million per minute are spent by governments around the world on fossil fuel subsidies, which First time I heard this number, I was completely shocked. Um, and I think it's just such a drastic number. And it, obviously, a lot, of these, a lot of this money goes from you know, oil countries in the Middle East or from Venezuela or stuff like that. But also, when you look at Europe or North America, governments still spend a lot of money subsidizing environmentally damaging energy sources, while at the same time basically complain, complaining about it. So that's kind of a weird hypocrisy going on right there. Yeah, mm -hmm. Kai, I think you bring up a really excellent point about just spending money and the amount of money that government kind of throws at things. It gets back to a little bit of what we were talking about originally in government versus market environmentalism and, and who, which system actually allows the people making decisions to truly understand the costs and benefits or the trade-offs of the decision they're making. And this is, again, kind of an extraneous example, but I think it is such a classic showcase of political environmentalism. And so in, in Montana, where I'm located in the United States, we have Glacier National Park, beautiful mountainous landscape, absolutely spectacular, like 
truly, I, I'm biased, but one of the most incredible landscapes in the entire world. And in Glacier, there are all of these kind of high snowy mountain trails and, and destinations. And so um, years back, somehow it was decided, okay, we have this human waste problem that's happening. So let's put in these wonderful like composting outhouse toilets for Glacier National Park visitors to use up in the mountains in the backcountry. And they spent like millions of dollars on these outhouses. Like these had to be the most expensive outhouses I have ever heard of in my life. And and it just pains me because you think of like a million dollars that can go to a lot of good things, right? But a million millions of dollars for these outhouses. Sure enough, the government signs the check, says like, yeah, let's fly it in. It's great. They realize eventually that because of the climate in Glacier, where it's mountainous and cold, the composting toilets aren't actually able to function and achieve their composting goals in this in this environment. And so they end up using spending money to have to helicopter out the waste. And so it's just this classic example to me of, right, it sounds great. Let's preserve the environment by putting in these composting toilets. And and sure, like that's that's a really good goal. But then when you realize how much money and resources and things did we spend on this when there are other areas that could be much better served with that money, time, resources, uh, just to me it's an example of who's making the decisions and do you actually have knowledge of thing, how things work on the ground. So yeah, again, superfluous, but the, the spending issue is just another huge question of how does government prioritize environmental needs. Kai, on the, the concept of the Austrian e School of Economics in terms of misallocation of resources, uh, do, you, do you see that as, as a big theme here? Yeah, definitely. And I think, especially when it comes to government environmentalism, it's also often uh, from an Austrian perspective, you know, the knowledge problem comes in from Hayek, uh, meaning that governments obviously, uh, you know, politicians, they have their ideas, they think they know best when they potentially don't because they don't have enough information um, what is best on the ground. Um, and basically that they just spend a lot of money or that they regulate stuff that they actually don't really know that much about and that in the end there's a disaster then coming up. Um, whereas it might be better either to put it back on the market or to decentralize the political decision-making to a level where politicians, first of all, can obviously be held better accountable, but also where they... Um, you know, they know actually what's going on there within those uh, circumstances, within those scenarios, within them, uh, they are in there themselves, if you want. Um, and I think that helps a lot. And from that perspective, sort of from the knowledge problem, um, I think you can see the problems in, as in all other areas of political decision-making, the same problems uh, arise in the environment as well. And can you elaborate also, uh, Hannah, on that regard? Like what, what elements of market environmentalism would you emphasize or, or take as the basis like in you're big on incentives you mentioned a lot of that in your writings and maybe also de decentralized planning yeah absolutely incentives are kind of the foundation of thinking about market environmentalism uh, a few other things that i think are really important to consider um are one, the role of property rights um, and identifying that doesn't have to mean an individual owns the air or the water or whatever it is. It can instead be a community scale. It can instead be a business scale. It, it doesn't have to be 
exactly like an individual ownership, but there is very clear ownership in some capacity of, of resources and who's responsible for those resources. A second element is trade and the ability to exchange those resources and ultimately allocate those resources to the highest valued use, right? So that's where I think um, actually a, a beneficial role of government can come in is in upholding and enforcing those property rights and contracts for trade, basically kind of being a, I don't know, a, an officiant per se on a lot of those things. Um, trade is where we're able to say like, okay, so a farmer has this historically pulled a bunch of water out of stream to irrigate his crops. But that means that the fish in the stream or downstream users don't get the water resources that they need to flourish. So instead what you can have is um, like the fishermen's groups come and actually pay a farmer to leave some of that water in stream. Suddenly you have a profit motive. The farmer has a reason to innovate and think through how can I become more efficient with my water usage because there's a profit motive here. What I don't use, someone else will pay me to use for conservation. Um, and we've seen tons of those sort of market examples organically appear. So I think that goes to show that property rights and trade really matter. Another kind of third final element, I think, is liability. And also understanding that if someone comes in and harms a resource that you own, they are liable for that and they cannot be doing that. So that's an example of say you have um, a pond in your backyard or and someone keeps polluting into it and it's destroying uh, the fish or water source that you drink from or whatever that might be. You clearly own that pond and so you're able to hold the person doing the harm and the polluting liable for that. So I think those are some of the, those are the three tenants in my mind property rights, trade, liability, that kind of sum up market environmentalism to ultimately get those incentives right and address some of that knowledge problem where you have the locals engaging in those exchanges. Yeah, I think uh, that also goes to show then on the other hand, uh, how government in that sense, again, fails often enough because for instance, on liability, it's very difficult to hold governments liable for what they are doing. So if they spend a lot of money on things that actually destroy the environment, well, bad luck, I guess. Um, just as one example, but I think the private property aspect is obviously extremely important also when it comes to setting the incentives right, uh, because um, as Aristotle said already two millennia ago, uh, that which no one owns, nobody cares for. So on the other hand, that which, something, which someone owns, someone will care for. So if you actually are in charge of, of the property that you own, then you actually will be you will be incentivized to take care of it, to use it sustainably, to not just, you know, do whatever you want with it because you might actually want to have it still in 10 or 20 years or something like that. Um, and that incentive motive is obviously extremely important. And it is it's also part of market environmentalism in general. If you look at the profit motive, I know it's extremely horrible because, you know, you're exploiting everyone and stuff and let's get rid of capitalism because of the, co uh, because of the profit motive as the socialists say, but in, instead the profit motive is extremely important um, in getting, in kind of showing the uh, entrepreneur what is actually the best way to go about on the market. And it also incentivizes him to do more with less because he always wants to use the least resources to obviously maximize profit. And that also puts the incentives into place that you can, you, entrepreneurs actually act sustainably, actually act in, a, in an appropriate way to the environment. Obviously that doesn't always work perfectly fine, but it certainly on, in general works much better than, you know, 
a politician who doesn't really have an incentive um, to, to do that, other than obviously his goodwill. Um, but even then, it might actually not turn out to be overly efficient or the best solution. And there's no real way to know whether it's the best solution. Yeah, Kai, I think you bring up a really excellent point with the profit motive and and thinking as well of like in this sort of trade profit oriented um, system, like we as the consumers or we as the demanders for environmental quality, actually we're the ones who have the power, right? Like I have the ability to then go out and make a demand of what I want. I'm not just another person lobbying the government where as we said, like crony capitalism, the folks who are best connected, lobby the best, like they will ultimately find ways to be able to get what they want done. It's in these more market systems where those of us who, who care about these things are able to actually go and make an exchange and get what we want rather than going through the ridiculous lobbying process, trying to s promote political decision making that ultimately can be undone when you have the next political leader come in or, or changed on kind of on a whim. Uh, so I think that's where we actually see some of this sustainable grounds up approach really working. And we're currently in this post-COVID era. Uh, Klaus Schwab of the World Economic Forum has uh, announced this Great Reset program, uh, as he mentions, using this as an opportunity for, for this time frame. And uh, it presents a agenda-based, government-promoted, centralized planning approach to environmentalism. Uh, wondering your thoughts on this program and uh, what, what it entails, uh, Hannah? Yeah, that's a great question. And especially when we think about uh, environmental issues that are more global in scale, right? Thinking things like climate change, ocean pollution, some of, some of those biggest things, it does raise the question of do we need a broad global approach to a lot of these things? And and specifically with the Great Reset, I do share some of your concerns about how things actually go. Um, I, I would argue that in some cases, frameworks and these global frameworks, we, we live in a global economy. There's going to need to be some global cooperation. However, the devil's in the details here, right? The framework can be a really good thing. If we as a global economy and a global community are able to say like, yeah, we share these concerns. These are things that we wanna work on. The problem is when you start tying in mandates and you start tying in kind of the command and control regulatory approaches to how to get things done and try to say that what what is hap what works for the United States works for South Africa, works for the UK, works for India, right? Like there's there are very different cultural, economic, societal norms that happen in those places. And so kind of having a framework that that forces us to realize COVID-19 kind of wrecked the global economy. We're in a, a great period of having to rebuild and think through how do we rebuild? What do we want when we rebuild? Those sort of questions I do think it's very important we think through uh, with global partners. However, the importance is, is the how. Do we allow each of those countries to kind of establish what works for them? And I kind of think of the US not being a part of uh, the, the Paris Agreement on some of these climate things and where we've actually been able to see, though we have not been a part of that 
formally of that agreement, we've been able to see really incredible progress happen through business initiatives, local initiatives, state-led initiatives, being able to say like, okay, yeah, maybe here's this goal. We aren't tied into any framework or mandates or whatever that might be, but instead we've been able to say, this is a goal, here's how we're gonna take care of it on our local, I don't know, on our local soil, for lack of a better term. And so it's a great reset. I, I think there could be some potential to do that. My fear is in how we're going into it. So I don't know, Kai would love to hear kind of your response to that. Well, I think it's the great, great reset for me um, is in many regards a frustrating example of there being a clear willingness to do things differently in the post-COVID world, but not really doing it all that different, but simply uh, you know, doubling down on one-size-fits-all solutions, when I think the COVID crisis actually has proven that one-size-fits-all solutions don't really work all that well. Um, and I just find it a little weird how this agenda has sort of been compiled by kind of a uh, political elite, if you want, without actually wanting to get into the opinions of what actually people want. Um, and if I think we want a great reset, I would rather want to see a bottom-up reset uh, where people can actually, you know, have some political and economic agency again, where they can actually do stuff themselves, where they can be creative, innovate, where they can build their own lives up again, instead of having, um, you know, someone in Davos, Switzerland or something like that, um, making up new rules and new ideas of how that might look like for 7 billion people. I think that will just go wrong. And I, I, I'm all for a great, great reset to more freedom, to more, you know, local uh, decentralized uh, political decision-making, because I think that's very much needed in a post-COVID world, but it's not, it should be a bottom-up great reset, not a top-down one. And I think that is really the problem with uh, the World Economic Forum's great reset. Yeah, exactly. One. Uh, it's better an approach that preserves individual freedoms and liberties and in line with the Austrian School of Economics perspective. Yeah. So uh, how do we go from here? Like, um, uh, I guess the challenge is how do we foster an awareness of market environmentalism, you know, a, an approach based on that to, to the public, like what, what steps, what measures events, um, initiatives that, you know, what, what can we do at this point, um, you know, towards that? Your thoughts, Hannah? That's, that's a great question and something that I, I personally wrestle with and feel very passionately about um, because I know, especially kind of amongst my young adult peers, see there is this passion for environmentalism. The question is how do we do it and how do we show people that there's an alternative uh, to kind of the traditional bigger government approach. And so one of the things that I'm really trying to emphasize is we need to become a solutions-oriented movement. It's really easy to sit here and pick apart government. Uh, in fact, kind of, so Perk, the organization where I work, we've been around for 40 years and kind of started as just picking apart, like, where, wh why does the government fail the environment? And that's, that's, I'm going to go ahead and say that's a relatively easy thing to do. There's a lot of big examples to point to as, as we've done today. The harder thing is then saying, what's the alternative? As people truly care about the environment and conservation, they want to know if not government, then what? We are people that we want to cling to any sort of 
hope or optimism or the idea that doing something is better than doing nothing, even though sometimes doing nothing might be the best response. But so looking at what are the alternative solutions? What is a market oriented solution look like? Um, Kai brought up fisheries, and I think this is one of my favorite examples where um, we've seen ITQs and kind of fishing quotas emerge. These haven't been implemented well all around the world, but we're seeing more and more of them and they're growing and they're becoming better and better tools for managing fisheries. But it started as Kai Express, classic tragedy of the commons. Ocean fisheries were open access, people were overfishing. What I didn't catch, my neighbor was gonna catch, so I might as well catch it all and worry about tomorrow, tomorrow. And so we had these mass depletions of fish stocks. And so government came in and said, well, we should probably regulate this. And they placed restrictions on the size of boats people could use. Well, people are smart, so they innovated and they made, uh, their boats were smaller, but they were better. They had better nets, they had better uh, tools, better crews, all of those things. Came in and said, well, let's restrict the seasons. So people just said, awesome, we're gonna fish even harder in the seasons that we have. Again, continue to innovate, find ways to work around those regulations because their livelihoods depended on it. Ultimately, where we're at now is that um, we, we've established a sort of market approach where fishermen get are able to take ownership of a share of the fish quota for that fishery. And so they're able to say, cool, I have my piece of the pie. I can fish safely. I can extend out my season. I know that I get that share. And we also ensure that it's a sustainable total catch. Well, as that total fish population grows because we've been more sustainably fishing, your share of the pie ends up your share is the same, but the size of the pie increases. And so through this property rights-based approach, um, you're, we're able to see these fish stocks come back. And so that's a sort of example where, yeah, it's really easy to point out and say, cool, the government continued to fail in their attempts to regulate this, um, this fishery to a healthy environmental level. But that didn't that what does that get us that doesn't solve the problem so when we're instead able to say here's the market solution that we need to advance and here's how it works those are the sort of things that i think we need to do and, and groups like bca and perk and and kai and, and your work in austria like it's just it's incredible to see that these groups are now becoming more solutions oriented and i think that's what's going to give us future traction oh that's great and kai your thoughts on that yeah i can in a sense, only repeat what Hannah said, but I think it's so great in a sense that the environment gets so much attention these days, at least if it isn't for the coronavirus dominating everything. Um, you know, I, I feel like a lot of people kind of almost get scared of, I don't know, 16, 17 year old uh, students going out on the streets and protesting or something like that. But I think it's actually quite promising because while their solutions might be wrong or questionable to some extent. I think it's great that people care about it and our younger generations care about this issue so much. Um, and I think that on, a, on a, sen a sense makes me quite hopeful for the future. Now it's really about showing them the right solutions. Um, I think it's a little easier in countries like the US um, where there have been organizations like PERC for four decades who have kind of already set the framework for free market environmentalism who have already done a lot of work on that. And in the US, I feel like in general, there's a more of a pro-market perspective in general on, on issues. And those is, uh, this, this perspective gets a lot more hearing. In Europe, it's much more difficult. Nobody has done really something on it so far around here. And obviously there's a 
tendency in Europe in general in a way that doesn't really exist in North America, that whenever there's a problem, government needs to do something about it immediately. Um, so that makes me a little more pessimistic. But then again, to make it a little more optimistic again, um, I do think we need to, you know, be optimistic and show sort of um, the, the, we should show that there is hope um, and that we don't need to be apocalyptic. We don't need to be over-dramatizing things, that there are issues, but as Hannah said, that we need to be practical about it and that there are creative and entrepreneurial minds around the world who are improving the world every day and that the, that the world in the end gets better uh, every day and that we can, you know, solve these challenges um, without completely you know, destroying everything else along the way. And that, if, I think if we show that, the entrepreneurship, the inno innovation, uh, creativity, and all that, and what people can do themselves, um, I think then we can, you know, get market environmentalism, give it a hearing. Kai, can I ask you quickly, because I think, I think you're right, that we do kind of come from two different areas of the world that maybe embrace markets and entrepreneurship in slightly different ways. So I wanted to hear your thoughts. Do you think that this is something we can just sort of do through education or advancement? I know you recently edited a, a book on this, which I think is a huge educational tool that we can hopefully share. Do you think that these movements can kind of be naturally grassroots through localized education or do we need kind of policy changes? I know that's a loaded question, and ideally we'd probably have all of it, but where do you think we start? Oh, that's an uncomfortable question. <laughs> I, I... <laughs> um, well, I think it's a problem in all policy areas, not just the environment when it comes to sort of a European look at different things. Um, but I do think since not a lot has been done on market environmentalism in Europe so far. It's always important to get the message out, first of all. And then we can actually see how people react to it or what their problems might be. Um, and I think that's uh, so incredibly important, important to sort of have that educational basis um, to kind of show what market environmentalism could look like, to show why it is better. Um, because nobody, I think, really in Europe even thinks of market approaches when it comes to the environment at all. Like even, you know, center-right, pro-market, conservative voices who care about the environment, well, they kind of just, you know, they just copy the Green Party's playbook and they just have a Green Party environmental platform as a conservative party, for instance. They don't even think that there might be something in their tradition which could correspond also on that topic, which could also help on this topic. And I think just showing them that uh, it's obviously a tall task and one that will take a while, but I think that's probably the way to go instead of, I'm not particularly of a fan of, you know, trying to force policies on people. And I think for grassroots options, it's probably a little bit early considering nobody really thinks about market <laughs> approaches at all. Uh, and so I think that educational avenue might be the best and simply showing also people who already in other areas and other policy areas think like us to show them how this can also be useful in the environment, what they already preach in all the other areas. Well, awesome. Great insight, perspective, and vision. Uh, how can our listeners learn more about your work at, at PERC, Hannah? 
Yeah, please do feel free to always reach out to Perk. We are really lucky in that Perk is one of, I would say probably the only uh, very kind of long-standing research-based uh, organization where we only look at environmental issues through a free market perspective. There's a lot of free market groups who are able to deal in the environment or environmental groups who embrace some market perspectives, but I feel like Perk finds that middle ground so, so well. So we'd love to always hear your thoughts, questions, issues you're working on. You can find us online at www.perc.org or feel free to shoot me an email anytime. It's just Hannah, H-A-N-N-A-H, at perc.org. Great. And Kai? Yeah, you can check us out on austriancenter.com. Center as E-R, so American writing. Um, we usually don't really do a lot on the environment, but on Austrian economics in general. So if you're interested in, um, you know, more economic, typical economic issues, that might be the way to go. Um, we also have, as Hannah mentioned, a book, which Hannah also contributed to, uh, called Green Market Revolution, which we published last year with the British Conservation Alliance. You can find that on at Green Market Revolution, all one word, dot eco, E-C-O. Um, that's where sort of our environmental work is placed. Um, and if you want to contact me, then that's k.weiss, that's W-E-I-S-S, at austriancenter.com. And I'd love to hear from you then. Awesome. Thank you so much, Hannah and Kai. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Green Market. Subscribe to our channels wherever you're listening to us to make sure you see every time we post a new episode.